Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm Mila Atmos. Why is the injustice of the death penalty the collective responsibility for all American citizens? We hope to answer that question with our guest on Future Hindsight today, Stephen Bright. He's a lecturer at Yale Law School and professor of practice at Georgia State College of Law. He has also served as director, president, and senior counsel of the Southern Center for Human Rights in Atlanta. Stephen is the recipient of the American Bar Association's Thurgood Marshall Award in 1998 and is passionate about the creation of a public defender system in Georgia. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So your work centers around justice, especially for those who lack the resources for a fair trial. How did you come to do this work? Well, because I was asked to come and represent someone who was under death sentence and didn't have a lawyer, it struck me as quite uh, odd and, and unacceptable that somebody could be facing the death penalty without a lawyer when they had several possible avenues of appeal to go in their cases. And the more I learned and the more I saw about race and about poverty and about the arbitrariness of the death penalty, I just became more and more involved in uh, 1982, I really started doing it all the time and, and have pretty much been doing it ever since. Well, you have an impressive body of work. In preparation for this interview, I did a lot of reading of the articles you wrote and also watched some of your videos. And uh, I learned so much. First of all, thank you very much for doing your work. And one of the things that really struck me is that you mentioned in one of the pieces you wrote that the death penalty is one of the primitive punishments of a frontier society. What is the history of the death penalty here and how we find ourselves today in 2019? Well, at the time the country was first started, of course, there were no prisons. And so the punishments were fairly primitive. The lash, you whip people, you cut off people's fingers, uh, branded people put people in the stocks, hung people or shot people, that is, executed them. All of those punishments today are no longer seen as acceptable, except for the death penalty. Most of the world has moved past the death penalty long ago, and many of the states, of course, have as well. But it's still very strong, particularly in the states of the old Confederacy. The death penalty is very much a matter of race and place. The South is where 80% of all the death sentences come from. Right. What is the demographic of people on death row at this moment? Well, all the people on death row are poor. The most critical thing about poverty in the court system is having a court-appointed lawyer. And many cases are decided right there. If a person accused of a capital crime is assigned a lawyer who is not up to the task of representing someone in a murder case and in a death penalty case, you've sealed that person's fate right then. The case is basically rigged, sort of like a professional wrestling match. In fact, it sounds like it's much worse than that. From some of the examples that you cited, some lawyers are drunk or fall asleep. And that goes well beyond not being competent to try a capital case. Yes, that's the great shame of the legal system, that it tolerates that. Uh, we've had three people sentenced to death in uh, Houston, Texas, for example, in cases in which the lawyers slept during parts of the trial. And one person, George McFarlane, is still under death sentence in Texas, even though his lawyer fell asleep and even snored during his trial. 
There have also been cases, as you mentioned, where the lawyers were under the influence of alcohol. I had one case where the lawyer um, fell over in court because of his alcohol consumption and couldn't get up. The judge had the deputies lift him up and, and take him to jail and continue the trial for a day and then the next day produce both lawyer and client from the jail and resume the trial. This is totally unacceptable in any real system of justice. How is it that the court system continues to allow this? Well, as Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy said, the poor person accused of a crime has no lobby. The Supreme Court didn't decide until 1932 that a person in a death penalty case had a right to a lawyer, and it wasn't until 1963 that the court said anyone accused of a felony, a serious crime, was entitled to a lawyer. The question is, how do you convince the government, which is trying to execute or imprison or fine a person, to give that same person a lawyer to defeat those very purposes? There are some states that provide excellent representation to poor people accused of crimes. But unfortunately, there are many states that just simply are unwilling to spend the money to provide lawyers who have reasonable caseloads and have the resources necessary to hire investigators and all that it takes to defend a, a major case in the court system. And unfortunately, the Supreme Court, rather than trying to lift the quality of practice up, has basically said that if the judges think it didn't make any difference that the person was represented by an incompetent lawyer, then they can go ahead and, and uphold the conviction and uphold the, uh, the death sentence, uh, even though that was the case. Right. That's astounding. I think a lot of people don't understand how the complexities are also compounded by the fact that prosecutors and judges are elected officials and that juries are often all white in capital cases against black people who are accused. And I wonder what the solution is to this in your mind. Well, the criminal justice system is a part of society least affected by the civil rights movement. In the areas where I practice in the Deep South, a lot of change has happened. We have African Americans on the city council, the mayor of Atlanta, John Lewis in Congress, on school boards and, and, and county commissions and in the state legislatures. But you go to the courthouse and it looks like we're back in the 1950s. You can go and see the death penalty case in which the judge is white, the prosecutors are white, the court-appointed lawyers are, are white. And even in communities with very substantial African-American populations, they'll still be an all-white jury. And that's because during jury selection, two things happen. First, they ask all the prospective jurors if they're opposed to the death penalty, and people who are will be excluded. And generally, uh, a disproportionate number of those people will be African-Americans. And then when the jury is actually struck, each side has a certain number of discretionary strikes that it can use to exclude people. And very often, the prosecution will strike all the people of color, and so we end up with an all-white jury. And very often, I think even to the jurors, that doesn't seem fair. And to the people in the courtroom, in the community, it doesn't seem fair. And it really undermines the credibility and the legitimacy of the court system when a part of the society is just excluded from participating in the justice system. So when it comes to heinous crimes, what would you consider to be a just 
punishment or effective deterrent. How can we think about remaking the system? Well, it used to not be the case, but today in every state that has the death penalty, the alternative is life imprisonment without any possibility of parole. That really is another kind of death sentence. That's certainly sufficient to protect a community, which is probably what most people think is the key purpose of sentencing. But on the other hand, what we see is that life without parole is being given far more often than it is necessary. We have 2.2 million people in prisons in the country and a very vast uh, over-incarceration rate that no other country in the world has. Yes, indeed. No other country in the world has as many prisoners. And bizarrely, the United States, along with Iran, Saudi Arabia, and China, accounts for 90% of all the executions. Can you elaborate on how it is that the United States is the only Western nation that enforces capital punishment? Well, most countries, the European countries, did away with the death penalty back by, let's say, 1960. More recently, once apartheid had ended in South Africa, one of the first decisions after President Mandela had taken office, the Constitutional Court of South Africa held unanimously that in the uh, society we are building here, it's moving from hatred to understanding, from vengeance to reconciliation, there's no place for the death penalty. Mexico, our neighbor to the south, doesn't have the death penalty, nor does Canada. But the United States, the Supreme Court, found the death penalty unconstitutional in 1972. That it was so arbitrary. As one justice said, it was like being struck by lightning, who got the death penalty and who did not. It was so discriminatory, as Justice Douglas and others pointed out, that the defendant's race and the race of the victim in the crime were the key factors in deciding who received the death penalty and who did not. But after that decision, just four years later, the Supreme Court allowed the states to resume the death penalty. And all they based that on was the fact that the states, Georgia and Florida and other states, had just basically uh, tinkered with their statutes a little bit and said that was enough. What the court failed to deal with was the fact that the race discrimination was so much a part of the criminal justice system that tinkering with the statutes uh, didn't change that. And the fact that people were so poorly represented in many states, particularly the death belt states of the South, states that don't spend a lot of money on government, period, and certainly don't spend a lot of money on providing competent counsel for poor people in death penalty cases. And so the death penalty we have today looks just like the death penalty we've always had in terms of who's sentenced to death, geographically where people are sentenced to death, poverty with regard to the death penalty, race as influencing the death penalty. Just recently, last year, the Supreme Court of Washington held the death penalty was unconstitutional under that state's constitution, finding that race discrimination in the death penalty and the arbitrariness in which the death penalty was given out in Washington and only three counties were giving people the death penalty and the others were not, that it violated the Constitution of, of Washington. But the Supreme Court has not really stood back and taken a look at the death penalty overall to see that that very same thing is happening with regard to the death penalty nationally, not just in Washington. Right. In fact, one of the 
little understood facts for lay people like myself is that prosecutors have to seek the death penalty. So it is really a type of activism that comes from the prosecutor. And you mentioned that in Houston, there is one prosecutor who basically seeks the death penalty all the time. And also in Houston, there is a lawyer who loses all of his capital cases and everybody is sentenced to death. So given all this, do you think there is any chance of the death penalty being declared unconstitutional once more? I don't know that the courts, at least the National Supreme Court, given the composition of the court, uh, is going to find the death penalty unconstitutional, but one never knows what will happen over the next several years. The great change that we've seen with the death penalty is a decline from 1996 when 315 people were sentenced to death in the United States to last year, 2018, when only 41 were. That is an incredible drop, and that's a pattern that's been steady since, since 2000. So in a country this large with the number of homicides that we have, it's a very small number uh, of people who get the death penalty, and that's a function almost entirely of the prosecutors. All the death sentences that we have, 2% of the counties in the country account for about half the people who are under death sentence, and that's because they're counties where the prosecutors habitually seek the death penalty. I mean, in Houston, at one time, there was a prosecutor there who sought the death penalty in virtually every case uh, where it could be sought. But what's remarkable is today there's a different district attorney, and there people are not being sentenced to death there anymore. And so we have a handful of holdout jurisdictions that are still sending people to death, but most people have, have moved on. And I think increasingly the death penalty is going to diminish until finally we just decide it's not worth the candle. Well, that's encouraging news. What is the primary misconception about the death penalty and poverty that you would like to dispel? Well, I think people think of the death penalty for Timothy McVeigh or, or, or someone like that in some really hor horrific case. And those are the cases that people think about when you talk about the death penalty. But those are very, very few of the death penalty cases. Uh, they're all in homicide cases. They're all in serious cases, but they're in cases such as convenience store robberies where someone is killed. So it just depends so much on uh, w where geographically it happens. Many places, there will be no death penalty depending on where it happens. And there was a case in South Carolina where literally it was unclear which side of the county line the death had occurred on. And if it occurred on one side of the line, it was going to be a death penalty case because that was Lexington, which is a very pro-death penalty. It was on the other side of the line. It was Columbia, which is not likely to impose the death penalty. So literally, the case was decided by the surveyors figuring out which side of the county line the crime took place on. That's not really a principled way of deciding who should get the death penalty and who should not. So... I think a lot of people, if they saw the system up close, would be pretty appalled. In all of your articles, your point of view includes the story behind the human who is being accused. Why is it key to focus on humanity to help us form a more just legal system? Well, because the death penalty is very much a matter of uh, comparison. I mean, it should be based on the most heinous crimes and the most incorrigible offenders. 
the problem with the death penalty is that we really are not very good at identifying either one of those two things. It's very hard to calibrate murders, like which murders are more gruesome, more horrible. You could say mass murders or, or serial killers, but that's not the people generally that are on death row. The people that we're sentencing to death uh, tend to be people who are extraordinarily poor, many with profound mental illnesses, many who have very limited intellectual capabilities. Robert Holsley, for example, who sentenced to death in Georgia, grew up in a home where the abuse was so constant and so horrific and so notorious that the people in his neighborhood called his childhood home the torture chamber. Now, he was unfortunately represented by a lawyer who consumed a quart of vodka every day during his trial. That's 21 shots, uh, for those of you who don't uh, think of vodka by the court. One judge in Georgia said that lawyer wasn't functioning as a lawyer. That wasn't a fair trial and ordered a new trial. But then the Georgia Supreme Court said, well, we don't think it made any difference. We think that the same sentence would have been imposed even if he had been represented by a competent lawyer who had presented all the facts about his limited intellectual functioning and the horrific abuse that he served as a child. The fact is the courts have no idea whether or not it made a difference or not. Those judges didn't sit on the jury. They didn't hear the evidence. They didn't participate in the deliberations. And for them to say you can just shrug your shoulders and say it doesn't make any difference, that's preposterous. But that's what happens, and Robert Holsley was put to death by the state of Georgia. Yeah, it's uh, heartbreaking. In fact, a lot of the stories that you recount in your publications are so harrowing it makes you want to weep. What is our responsibility as citizens in addressing this injustice? What can we actually do as everyday people? I think the most fundamental thing is that everybody has to recognize that if we're going to have a court system that's fair and impartial, which I think we all believe in, that there has to be competent legal representation for the accused and that race cannot play a factor in anything from whether a person is arrested to whether denied bond to whether they're charged with a more serious crime to whether they're subject to a more severe penalty. The way that's accomplished is by presenting the evidence and having adversary systems sort things out and a jury decide based on the relevant evidence and the right factors. To say, well, we'll give him some ne'er-do-well lawyer who will just sort of go through the motions of representing him, well, yes, that gets the result that one might want, but it's not a principled way. It has no integrity, the way of getting there. And that's how we have innocent people condemned to die. We've had a lot of people who were sentenced to death who were later exonerated because the most fundamental protection against an innocent person being convicted is having a competent lawyer. The lawyer has to investigate the state's case, has to make sure that there really is a charge against the client, that the evidence supports that he's guilty of whatever he's accused of. Sometimes the person may be guilty of something, but they're not guilty of the most heinous thing they're, they're accused of doing. There really is very little diversity among judges, among prosecutors, among lawyers generally, but at least there should be representation of everybody in the community on juries that decide these cases, both guilt or innocence, as well as whether somebody should is so beyond redemption that they should be eliminated from the human community, that is, that they should get the death penalty. Last question. 
Okay. Looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? One of the things that makes me most hopeful is that you have a lot of very gifted law students who are going out and becoming lawyers and are taking on the uh, what some would say is a thankless task, but I've done it for 40 years and I've, I feel like it's uh, been rewarding in its own way, but are going out to places like New Orleans and to all over the country and uh, becoming public defenders and providing people with what the Constitution guarantees them. That is a capable lawyer who will zealously represent them, investigate their cases, get to know them, and make sure that they do not stand alone at the bar of justice and that they are capably represented. And those lawyers will deliver many people uh, from the kinds of injustices that the system is uh, unfortunately very capable of. That's truly the good news. Thank you very much. Sure. Thank you for having me. I think I was really most surprised by the fact that the death penalty and capital cases are so much more unfair than I thought they would be. I think we all have an inkling that it's an example of injustice, but we don't know exactly how. And after speaking to Stephen Bright and reading his publications, I was totally appalled. I think it just shocks the conscience to understand that the people who are on death row are primarily people of color and extraordinarily poor. And in the end, I feel very strongly that it's good, competent lawyers who are the guardians of justice. What happens when you give prisoners a top-notch education? On the next episode of Future Hindsight, our guest is Max Kenner. He's the founder and executive director of the Bard Prison Initiative, or BPI, a college that is spread across six interconnected prisons in New York State. He's also co-founder of the Consortium for the Liberal Arts in Prison and is the recipient of numerous awards, such as the Smithsonian American Ingenuity Award in Education. To me, the crisis of mass incarceration and the problems we have in education, particularly higher education, are not separate. They're the same. They both follow from a cynicism about young people, a fear of our future and a fear of young people. And when we get serious about the future and begin to treat our children with more empathy and more love, I think we can address both problems at the same time. Until next time, I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for listening to Future Hindsight. The executive producer and host of this program is Mila Atmos. The audio producer and music composer is Peter Fedak. The associate producer is Miriam Tsumbu. Find us online at futurehindsight.com and listen to us through your favorite streaming services. Mm-hmm.